Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Madam's Cast and today we are talking to the international travelling brilliant Antipodean chef Annalise Gregory and I'm really excited because I've been following her recent career on Instagram and I have to say she's one of those go-to streams that I need to look at from time to time. It would appear that she's living this amazing idealistic outdoor life foraging plucking food from nature, cooking it with this sort of instinctive ability to make it brilliant. Um, And I'm going to introduce her to the show right now, all the way from Tasmania. Annalise Gregory, are you there? I am here, yes. All the way from Tassie. Amazing, amazing. Um, Annalise, can you, for those of us who have not been following your career, can you tell us how you sort of ended up in Tasmania doing what you're doing now and what that is um, because I'm I for a start I'm baffled I keep thinking you're doing one thing and then it appears you're doing something else so <laughs> you were born in New Zealand I think shall we start very quickly there we can start there yeah and then how did you how did you start I mean you traveled then extensively in Australia I think but then how did you start what, what inspired you to start working with food Um, Well, my father was a chef and um, went to the Culinary Olympics and things like that. And um, so I suppose I always saw it as a a career path. Oh, God, someone's phone's going off now. We're going to have to edit this. Where is it? We don't we don't edit the Madam's cast, just so you know. If it goes off, it goes off. Oh, we don't edit it? Okay. We just knock it out there. It's a conversation. It's, It's, you know, it's very rough and ready. Don't worry. Uh, okay, so um, yeah, wanted to leave school, and um, someone said to me, "Do you know, do something that you love, and that way you'll never have to work a day in your life." And I thought I really enjoy cooking. Maybe I'll look at doing that. And um, it was obviously a complete lie because as soon as you do something you love as a career, you feel like you're kind of um, like selling your soul a little bit and putting yourself out there, and you know, being paid money for something that was previously just a passion. But um, it definitely has its good moments as well. Yeah, it's it's it can be quite long hours. Yes, I've been through all of that. <laughs> um, probably part of why I'm not, not currently working in a restaurant-based job. Yeah, restaurants. Um, my take on restaurants is that they're 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 great, but they're a bit addictive, and like all addictions, they're not entirely good for you. That's exactly how it is. I was thinking about that yesterday. I was like, something occurred to me and I was like, oh, maybe I should open another restaurant once lockdown's over. And then I was like, it is like a bad addiction that we have that we can't shake. We know it's bad for us. We know we'll probably lose all of our money. It's kind of like gambling. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, but but yeah, although the thrills are further apart. Mm, yes, but the yeah. highs are still there. The highs and the lows. <laughs> Okay, well, look, let's stick with the passion. Right, so let's stick with the positives, right? We all know that the day-to-day uh, exhaustion of heading up a busy restaurant team and continuing the creative bit while you worry about how you're going to pay everyone is uh, emotionally challenging and um, exhaust- exhausting for the, you and those around you. But there's lots of positive stuff about food. There's lots of great creative stuff. Um, and I hear that although you have – now, I think I might just get this right – you were until recently running a restaurant in Tasmania at Hobart. Is that right? Correct. Yes. Fantastic. And um, that is no longer happening because you've retired to the countryside to write a book. 
Yes. Um, so I left Franklin in December and um, to write a cookbook, um, which is about kind of me adventuring around Tasmania, my story of like how I wound up to be here coming from, you know, a small town in New Zealand, like all around the world and then to Tasmania. Um, and then also I um, shot an episode of Uncharted with Gordon Ramsay, which is I think out next week. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, hang on. Is that on National Geographic Channel? It is on National Geographic Channel. Yeah, very exciting. Great. And- I met Gordon Ramsay once. At the time, I was working as a chef um, for a Formula One team, and I was walking down the, the paddock at the race course carrying a bucket and a mop. <laughs> and I said, oh, Morning, Chef Gordon. Always been a fan. And he looked at me as if to say, I'm not talking to the boy who mops the floor. (laughs) Did you have a good time with him? Yeah, I I had the opposite time with him. Like I was um, apprehensive and worried, but I I had a really good time cooking with him. And I just, um, you know, the film crew told me to like give him some shit when we were cooking against each other. And so I just like really gave it to him, like full London kitchen, like, you know, cooking style. Um, And yeah, just really ripped into him quite hard. And then afterwards I was like, oh God, did I go too far? But um, no, I think he reveled in it. No, I've heard he's a really nice guy. Good fun to work with. So, I I mean, I would imagine that was an absolute scream. He's really fun. And um, he's also like, you know, I thought that maybe he had lost it a bit because it's been so many years since he's been in a restaurant kitchen, but he is a beast in the kitchen. Like he is fun, he is efficient, like he's, he's good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you sort of got that. I guess that. I guess that's a bit sort of once you've done that hardcore thing and 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 nailed it, and he definitely nailed it. Then you've kind of got it, right? Yeah, I guess it's like riding a bike; it stays with you. Yeah, I can. I can still fall off a bike, and I, I still never quite managed to keep up with the big boys in the pro kitchens. But that doesn't matter because. Um, you're writing a book, which is super exciting. And the book you've touched on uh, briefly for us is about you and the food around you. And I now I've, I'm a soft touch for a forager, right? Because I love foraging. And it sounds like you're living in some sort of foraging mecca. Can you tell us a bit about the sort of things you've got on your doorstep? Yeah, so um, it's just been autumn down here, obviously. So um, wild mushroom season. So there's been heaps of slippery jacks, um, lots of field mushrooms, lots of saffron milk caps. Um, I pick pepperberries, saltbush. I go diving for seaweed. Um, today I was diving for abalone and sea urchins um, and then went fishing for flathead and wrasse. Um, hang on, hang on. Tell us a bit about abalone because I know you cook with it a lot. And I know we don't have it here, and most English chefs will will never have touched one. So, can you explain a little bit about what it is? Yeah, so essentially, it's a large grazing sea snail, which leads me to think of them as like the cows of the sea. They just like roam around eating seaweed. Um, yeah. But so, if you can imagine like the foot in a scallop or an oyster, but it's a mm-hmm. yeah, it's a shellfish where the entire thing is made up of that kind of texture. Like the entire thing is like the foot of a scallop, basically. And nice. Single nice. shell and attaches like sucks onto rocks with the other side. But um, like that's conversely to like scallops and oysters, it's um, I would say like the meat recovery on this is huge. It's probably mm, over 60%. Wow. That's good. 
That's good. And, and and you say it's like the cow of the sea. I notice um, I've been reading probably a year after everyone else. I've been reading um, Josh Nyland's book and I notice he cures quite a lot of his fish and sort of air dries it and does a nice sort of different approach to things. Have you, I mean, is that sort of suitable for that kind of thing? If I managed to get some abalone from somewhere, would I be able to sort of cure it or is it best fresh? Um, personally, I really like them fresh, but yeah. it's something that I've thought about and I have some friends that do that smoke them and make like abalone bacon and pickle them and stuff. It's something that I haven't ventured into too much, but I've been meaning to with all this, you know, newfound spare time I have on my hands because of lockdown <laughs> um, to work on. I've got to warn you. I've got to warn you, Annalise. We know, we know about lockdowns. It's okay. happening all over the world. Um, and I am really happy to relate stuff back to it discreetly. But if, if you've, um, if you carry on, you'll find that there's sort of an angry duck will start quacking at you down the line to remind you that um, that the COVID chat needs to be sort of wound back a little bit. So I've given you a warning. If you find some quacking going on, you know you've landed yourself in it. Okay. All right. Fair call. <laughs> but you've got lots of spare time, which is good. So I'm imagining that you're furiously drafting the book. Yeah. So at first... Um lost a bit of time to couch and things like that. And I'm also heaps of preserving and foraging. And then I was like, what am I doing? I should be writing this book. And so I just, um, yeah, was like churning out recipes, getting photo shoots done. Um, lots of time, many nights, like in my home kitchen, you know, testing things, not knowing if the recipes I wrote made any sense, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's actually, it's a really hard thing as a chef, isn't it? To write and test recipes because, we just kind of cook. Yeah, I'm not used to using recipes. I find it really difficult to be there with a set of scales and write down every single thing. But it's just like a different mindset. And once you get yourself into it, um, it does flow. It's just getting there. Yeah, I just make mine up. And then I have endless emails from people saying they don't quite work. <laughs> oh, you see, that's what I'm trying to avoid. <laughs> <laughs> see, that's clever. Otherwise, you will spend the rest of your life explaining to people what they need to do to change the recipe you've written to make it work properly. Right. Annalise Gregory, this is great. Just having a chat, chilling out with you. Um, are you having a glass of wine? I am having a glass of wine. What I, sort of wine are you drinking? Uh, it's a Chardonnay. Um, my friends gave it to me, so I'm not entirely sure where it's from. Came from okay, Nipwich. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah. Great. I'm having coffee because obviously the time difference. If I was having a glass of wine, you might start to worry about me. Um, so... The basic format of the main part of the Madam's Cast, as you know, is that you get to tell me about three things you would like to change within the world of food, which is basically most of the world, right? So um, we can launch into that right now, as long as you're comfortable, you've got a glass of wine there and you're feeling like telling me what they are. Is that it? Should we get cracking on the first first one? Let's get cracking on it. Okay, Annalise Gregory, number one thing about the world of food that you would change go oh god these are such big questions um and i haven't pre-thought about them but um in terms of our industry it needs to be like any other industry it needs to be regulated as if we were office workers it's the only way that i can see forwards for us um because the way that we've been running restaurants in the past hasn't necessarily been working i'm not sure if it's the same in london but it definitely is this way in australia um so 
it just needs to become like any other industry where we don't work 16 hour days anymore. You know, we work like an eight or 10 hour day. Uh, people get sick leave, they get paid overtime. You know, you take care of people's mental health. People, everyone gets paid for the hours that they work. Um, so this, the system's been broken and it needs to be fixed. That is one of the things that I think needs to be changed. And that's going to wow. the public and public perception of how much food costs as well. It's a lot. It's a large problem. It's a big issue. Well, it is, and I think we should we should put a little fence around it in terms of working conditions and not let it expand beyond that for the first point because okay. I think that is so right. I was reading. No, that's not quite true. My wife is a yoga instructor, amongst other things, and she was reading a book called The Oxygen Advantage. I think about the effect of sleep deprivation upon the human being. Now, I spent most of my 20s, as I'm sure you did, having four hours sleep and working consecutive 16-hour days in a small stainless steel room full of angry people and hot things. Uh, And amongst that, the sleep deprivation was the thing that sort of induced the psychosis that made that tolerable. Oh, that's Have not you ever where I thought you were going to go with that. I thought you were going to say it was the sleep deprivation that made it worse. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I think I, I found that I became a sort of hooked on this way of life um, and that it became very normal. And I'm, I've, I, it wasn't until recently that I thought maybe that was a sort of psychosis induced by a lack of sleep. It's an interesting theory. I hadn't considered. <laughs> I know I hadn't considered it from that um, that side before, but yeah, definitely could be. And so, one way to look at that, I've always thought, would be maybe maybe we open restaurants a bit less. That's fair. Although we obviously all have the desire to open restaurants, and it's one of those things that you know, I'm not saying I know the answer to it because I don't. It's just something that I'm aware needs to change. Mm, mm. No, I wasn't meaning, sorry, I didn't express myself very well. I didn't mean open fewer restaurants in general. I just meant if your average restaurant's open for 80 hours a week, why don't we open them for 40 hours a week? Ah, okay. Yes, now now I'm with you. <laughs> I think we should have a great diversity in lots of different restaurants, but I think they should maybe be open a bit less. What else, what else could we do to tackle the, I mean, you've touched on paying a bit more for your food in the restaurant, and I, I agree with that. We should never sort of... Um, we should never cut out the value of someone's time spent preparing and creating a meal. Um, what else do you think could be done to help chefs get paid a bit more for the time they work and work maybe a bit less and a bit more reasonable hours? Like a lot of it like, comes down to the business side of things because it's not that restaurant owners want to make chefs do that. It's just that they haven't seen another way to make the restaurant work. They feel that they're between a rock and a hard place. So I think it's a lot about public perception of um, how much food costs, the value of food, the value of food in our society, and like what it's worth to us to like go out and sit with friends in a space where you get served. Um, and I think even I've been guilty of not realizing, you know, how much it costs people to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Wow. Okay. That, that's a really good point. You know, these are people's lives. And I, one of the recurring things for me is that most, or not all, but a lot of chefs go into, into that industry because they're creative people. And then they end up getting burnt by it and never going back to it very quickly. I think because of the hours 
And for a long time, it's been a case of, well, you know, you need to just be hardcore enough to cope with that. But I'm with you. I mean, why should people have to put up with that to to make a living doing something that, that they're creatively designed to do? Oh, I was like that for many, many years. I was just like, you know, I would do the 16, the 17 and a half hours and think that anyone that couldn't keep up with it was just um like too weak or not as strong as I yeah. was. And um, I don't see it that way at all anymore. No, interesting. Interesting perception changing. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. That was a fantastic point, number one, number one Annalise. Thank you very much. Um, have you had a chance to think about point number two yet? Uh, I'm formulating point number two. Um, it's not fully formulated yet, but maybe you can help me. It's something along the lines of, you might know the answer to this, is it one third or two thirds of all the food produced in the world goes to waste? Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, good. Can I recommend you a book? Yes, you can. You might, you might have read it already and it's a, it's probably a decade old now, but there's a book by a guy called Tristram Stewart. Uh, who's an English guy. I think he was a Bristolian. I might have that wrong. Um, And it's called Waste, Uncovering the Global Food Scandal. Okay, no, I haven't read Uh, it. Okay, okay. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to share you a link to a a website so that you can find a copy of that. I mean, there'll be a local one in the Southern Hemisphere, I'm sure, but um you, you'll be you'll have the right isbn number and you'll be able to find the book so um that's worth a read because here it sparked a, a little bit of a, a revolution i mean a lot of chefs were thinking about it anyway but it's interesting how much of that food waste happens in the general retail side of things and in the ready to eat food side of things mm, probably far more than happens in the restaurant industry that's the situation that I think needs to be targeted. I mean, I am one of those chefs that's kind of like no waste and we're going to use the bones and we're going to dehydrate this and we're going to use all the waste and make flavoured salts and, you know, do everything we can. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, when I was running Franklin, I got the waste down <coughs> to oh, a quarter of what it was when I first started. But um, it's not it's not those places that are the worrying side of it. It's, you know, it's at Woolworths and Coles and in people's home fridges when they shop. And that's the part that needs to be changed. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, one of the figures in this book, and it's uh, probably a decade or not quite since I've read it and um, might be making this up, but it's something like this. 35 to 40% of the food that's waste uh, of the of the food that's bought in the retail system in the developing world is uh, sorry in the developed world is wasted so the western world spends however much money it spends on food a week and 40 percent of that is thrown away before it's eaten it's horrible it just makes me really sad thinking about it yeah 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 it's heartbreaking and another of the figures that kind of brings it together for me quite nicely um is that we could feed everybody on the planet that is currently under their minimum daily allowance of calories on the food that's wasted by the united states of america which is a bit of a mind blower it is um there we go okay Mm -hmm. (laughs) right so i'm with you so for number two uh we're looking at getting rid of food waste is that is that where we are yeah. I was, so you were I was saying imagining that you were going to then um I don't know be like well <laughs> I have the answers to this what we need to oh, solve the problems are <laughs> <laughs> well I think the answers are I mean I have you know I think 
people will treat something as disposable when they don't understand its value or have become immune to its ability uh, or, or have become immune to the understanding that it's so valuable. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think moving to the country has highlighted all of this for me a lot more because, um, you know, I don't have uh, trash shoots. Like, I don't even get trash picked up. Like, everything that comes in or goes out of my place, I have to physically stick in the car and drive somewhere. And it makes you acutely aware of what you waste and um, how you live. Yeah. Yes, it does. And we're very separated uh, on the most part, for the most part, from the way our food is produced. We tend to go to a, I mean, it's an interesting one because sort of 70 years ago, if so that's what's that, my grandmother or not quite, um, if I'd said, you know, if you'd gone to her in her uh, early teenage years and said, in, in 10 years time, you'll be able to walk into a room uh, that's a shop that's twice the size of a football field full of foods from all over the planet, none of which really are beyond your budget and buy as many of them as you like and they'll never run out. They would have given you a very old-fashioned look and said, you're completely mad. That's never going to happen. Why would you ever do that? And yet that is now the reality that most people live with. We have built systems for profit rather than for value. And that has engendered a situation where or has created a situation where people can see food as a disposable commodity, which is something that I find fairly horrific. It is. Yeah. Well, I think I, I feel a bit like I've stolen your point, Annalise. You need to talk more. <laughs> no, no, you haven't. You've just elaborated on what you know about it because I'm just, you know, coming up with these points and, you know, thinking about the things that have been bothering me about the food world that we um, live and work in. Um you have knowledge about these things. And it's important that these conversations happen because otherwise we're not going to move forward. We're not going to go anywhere. I agree. I agree. So what I'd like you to do is, can you tell me, you touched very briefly on a couple of cool things you were doing at your last restaurant to reduce food waste and to make the most out of the things that you had coming through the door, uh, not only to honour them, but because they were delicious to eat. Could you give us a couple of really good examples of things you did that you sort of were motivated to do because you wanted to reduce the waste. And then when you tasted them, you went, wow, that's brilliant. I'm going to do that again. Yeah. So I suppose some of the things we did, um, so say we got in a pumpkin, so we would, you know, like take out the, you know, take out the seeds, peel it, you know, use it, roast it, serve it to customers. Then um, we'd be like, okay, so what are we going to do with all these other bits? So one time we fermented all of the pumpkin skins and then dried them and made a pumpkin powder, which was really tasty, and then used it to like sprinkle on other dishes. So it's like, you know, pumpkin inception, the skin of your pumpkin coming back to you. And then the seeds um, like wash, dry, and then um, made like a brittle and then like use like a pumpkin seed brittle in a dessert. And so you're just, I mean, sometimes it does mean that it can be labor heavy, but it's interesting in terms of finding those ways. And often, I don't know, it speaks to your creativity and to use it in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. So the skins you're fermenting, is that, um, so are you just salting them and leaving them in a jar for a bit to sort of uh, ferment it, like in a sauerkraut kind of fashion? Or are you introducing a culture? What are you? I think it was a 2% salt brine and we had a really large wood-fired oven that um, remained warm pretty much 24-7. And so we would, you know, sit everything in their crocks on the back of the wood-fired oven and um, yeah, they would all kind of tick away. Nice. And then you could dry them out in the wood oven overnight, right? 
Yeah, exactly. We dried out a lot of things and like the latent heat from the wood oven, like we would just throw in um, like abalone guts that we would dry and use to make an abalone like seasoning salt. Um, yeah. Yeah, like fish bones. And also you'd get a bit of like a light smoke on them as well. Lush, totally lush. I love that. I love the the way that a wood oven will sit like a sort of weight on a rubber sheet on the you know on the reality plane of a kitchen you put something like that in the middle of your cookery processes and it influences everything you do it does it really does and once you've had one you can't see cooking another way I found it very difficult to go and cook um, and do events in other kitchens where it would be say all induction when I was used to like pretty much only cooking with wood I would really struggle (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yes, I need to put another log on the stove. <laughs> <laughs> but I, oh, it, I hated it to begin with. It took me a while to come around to it, but then it was like, oh, that's, yeah, but that's because it was challenging you, right? Yeah, I wasn't used to having to light the oven two hours before I needed to cook something. I was used to just turning on a rationale and being like, I need 75% dry heat, 25% steam, and we're going for 167 degrees. Wow. Yeah, that controllability that that these magical robotic ovens we have these days. And I think they're amazing bits of kit too, right? They're incredibly efficient. And, um, you know, most kitchens of my dreams, and not that I want a restaurant again, let's be clear about this, but most restaurant kitchens of my dreams would have both those functionalities, I think, in some way or another. Um, I'm not sure exactly how, but in some way or another. So fermented pumpkin skin powder sounds like something we all need in our lives. Um, <laughs> I'm impressed with that one. Um, pumpkin seed brittle is something I have done. So I've, I'm with you on that one, 100%. Um, and I like that whole that whole way of just looking at it. Like here's a whole thing and we wash the dirt off it rather than peel it and lose a third of its weight. It's just changing those little things in your mind. I remember um we once did a waste survey of food that we were wasting in terms of you know waste as i counted it at the time peelings and things like that and we just kept them in 10 liter tubs until they were full we weighed weighed them and then we sent them off to the food waste heap and the numbers that came back were amazing and it was just like right we've got to get these numbers down and as soon as you start making that a driver your creativity kicks in again and you stop processing stuff mindlessly and you start applying your thought process to every part of the of the ingredient. Yeah, I mean, essentially it's what Josh is doing with fish, the nose to tail thing, but just with everything and with vegetables. Like if you're not going to yeah. throw away fish scales now because you're going to fry them and use them in something, why are you also going to throw away potato skins? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. I'm with you 100%. And actually, here's the thing. I'm stealing your food waste point here from you. Um, but when you forage for your own food, that changes your mind about how much of something you're going to use and how much. And I, I personally, I would extend that to fishing and hunting as well. But when you have captured or found something yourself, like mushrooms are a great example. You're a big mushroom picker. I'm a, I'm a huge uh, mushroom sort of, addicted person i love the way they operate and i am massively um obsessed by them you know when the when the big season's going off here in the uk in the autumn here i am often um absent from important meetings because i've decided to go foraging 
but the value of that basket of things you've taken from the environment is very well understood by you far more so than if you just go and swap some money you've earned for it very much so great okay so i think we've nailed food waste um we've got that one as point number two so we've got number one improving the way of uh, that life works for chefs uh, as in giving them a better work-life balance which i think is a basic human right for everyone uh and number two food waste just getting it into your heads really uh not necessarily getting too extreme about it but just working on that sort of consciously being aware of it and and striving to reduce it in practical and delicious ways um fantastic you've got you've only got one thing left Annalise, uh, of the main three things you're allowed to change about the world of food. And I'm really looking forward to hearing what it is. Oh, I don't have anything like I need Mars bars to be bigger or anything like that. I can't think of anything that I want to be larger. But um, I do feel like somehow I'd really like to improve the way that people eat at home. Like so yes. many people come to my house and eat and send me messages and they're like, how do you cook like this at home? And they're just so confused about it. And then I'm confused. I'm like, what do you make? Then I'm confused about what they cook at home. And yeah, when do people learn these skills? I'm not really sure. Wow. That is a big subject, but you're a hundred percent on it. I think there's two sort of degrees, isn't there? I think you get some people around who cook, quite a bit for themselves at home and have been on a bit of a journey and get it and they're sort of into it and then other people who are just completely mind blown they're like i don't understand how you've done any of this and i think there's that sort of two categories of of people out there who aren't chefs right everyone has to interact with food yeah and especially that sometimes people say to me that like you know cooking dinner for themselves every day of the week like it's it's such a chore and, you know, for me, it's not. It's something I really enjoy. And I would like it to be that way for more people, I suppose. It's not like, oh, God, what do we have to do now? It's like, oh, you know, it's exciting. Okay, so I'm going to make you narrow this down a little bit, if you mm -hmm. can. Oh, in fact, I'm going, to get you to give us a, I'm going to get you to give everyone a tip. What would be a good key to getting people into better food at home and, in, and you know, switching everything off and chilling out and just enjoying the laborious process of cooking i've got a couple that i i think are really good hooks for getting people into it but i'd be really interested to hear what you think so one one or two uh processes or dishes or things that you would put into everyone's kitchen and say look make that get into it it's going to improve everything you make at home oh that's hard I'm not good at these questions. No, come on, come on. <laughs> Processes or dishes or things. Um, I see it more in, um, like, recently I put myself on a zero processed food ban. So I'm not allowed to eat any processed food at the moment, only things that I make myself. Which okay. is sometimes challenging, but um, ultimate re ultimately rewarding. And also yeah. um, to – and now the supermarkets are going to hate me for this, but um, – to not buy any fruit or vegetables from a supermarket, but to only go to local farmers, which does mean that you have to spend more time driving around and finding things. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, but same, I found new people in my area that I didn't even know were growing food. And um, the things that I buy, I've made relationships with people growing them. And like the, fr- yes. the quality of the fruit and veg that I eat at home is 10 times what it was before. Amazing. So at, at the point, so, so tip number one, change your shopping habits, basically. Have a, have a little step outside of your normal purchasing habitat of the supermarket and try and just buy one or two things a week from somewhere different and have a chat about them when you're getting them. Yeah, actually go to the local butcher, go to the baker. And when I lived in countryside France, that was part of what I loved about life there was that people were... Hang on, hang on, hang on. You didn't mention France earlier. Where were you living in France? Uh, I lived in Lagueur when I worked at Michel Bras. Oh, you just casually dropped that in there. I like that. Okay. I mean, yeah, that must have been an experience. That was definitely an experience. It was my Holy Grail restaurant. Oh, God. And and was it? Because so often those things end up being less than you've made them up to be in your head. Um, the restaurant, you know, is different over the years. But yeah. that Michelle, is, Michelle is the real deal. Michelle is oh. even better in reality than maybe I thought he was. Oh, that is so cool, Annalise. That is so cool. I wasn't disappointed. Brilliant. Because meeting your heroes is a real double-edged sword. I've met a couple of mine and I've been amazed and a couple of mine have been disappointed. Um, and I, and it, it's, it, it can really affect you. And I think that's fantastic that he is such a, an idol. Oh, brilliant. Okay, right. Sorry, I interrupted on an example that you were giving me on when you were living in France. So let's pretend that I didn't interrupt you out of my own interest in to know what you were doing in France and just say, okay, when you were living in France. Uh, it was just the way of life how everyone, you know, you go to the baker because they specialize in, you know, bread and pastries and things. You go to the butcher, everyone has something that they specialize in, that they, sorry, specialize in, and um, that they're very good at. And you know, you share your like shopping dollars around to support small businesses and support the community. Yeah. Yeah. And then the baker knows how you are and you see the same people in the bakery at the time that you go in and they'll tell you how they are, or you'll realize you don't like that person or yeah, it's sort of, yeah, you get a bit more of a life going on. I mean, supermarkets are incredibly inhuman places, aren't they? They definitely are. And for so many years, I wanted that life. Like I lived in King's Cross in Sydney for like six years, you know, with 24-hour supermarkets and I wanted 24-hour everything. I lived in Paris. I lived in London. And it's just not what I want in my life anymore. I want what people used to have. Oh, that is, that's so funny because it, it does, you do hear that quite a lot. That people want to get back to sort of real stuff. And I think that's one of the things that I, I, I always tell people when they sort of say, I want to just improve the way we eat at home, you know, that what's a starting point? And one of the things I always sort of say, right, really simple. It's like, right, just make an unleavened bread. If you can make your own little flour wrap or tortilla or something like that, if you can just do that for yourself, then that's the beginning. You know, there's a beginning there that will show you the simplicity and how much better something is than buying it in a packet. And it takes no time and the ingredients are cheaper than you could possibly buy the end product for. Uh, there are other stops along the way. Give me what, give me one more thing that you would sort of like to see people doing more of in their home kitchen that would lead them to sort of that better oh, world um, as we see. Like broth, 
everyone's buying broth now, like expensive broth, bone broth, and all these things. And I'm like, broth is a stock. If you can make a good stock. Yeah. Yeah. Carry on. <laughs> Um, and then and then you just heat it and drink it. And I've just been making a lot recently and I've kind of like, you know, rediscovered a love for it. In my fridge at the moment, I have like a master stocky chicken broth, but like loose, you know, toned down enough that you can drink it. Um, a, yeah. a crayfish broth and a mushroom broth. Wow. Cray- so crayfish, when you say crayfish, is that a freshwater crayfish or a saltwater crayfish? It's a saltwater crayfish. Okay. So that, I think that's a bit like what we would think of as a squat lobster. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Nice. And I always think with shellfish um, of the sort of clawed kind that the shell has more flavour than the flesh, anyway, right? Uh, I mean, I'm going to put this down to Tasmania, but like the the tails are really beautiful and really sweet and like really clean down here. But um, I <laughs> I want to come to Tasmania. <laughs> I'm feeling left out. It's a magical food island. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to run some tours down there. That's what I'm going to do. But we're going to have to – I'm really against long-distance flying, so we're going to have to take a long time to get there. Oh, you have to travel by boat then. I know. This is seeming like quite a long journey for lunch, isn't it? Mm. Um, <laughs> broth. Yeah. And, again, that's something. People used to just have a stock pot. On, I mean, I remember as a child, I would walk into my grandmother's kitchen or my mum's kitchen, and there would always be – a pan of stock on the stove and it wasn't always that nice but there was always a pan of stock bubbling away it was just part of what you did yeah same with my mum if she had a chicken frame like you know you roast chicken you use the frame and you just make a stock it doesn't have to be amazing but then you have stock for making risotto you know for like finishing as a broth for you know braising many different things wow i think we're there i think the the thing about cooking at home is that it leads to the next thing and you can't, I think the danger with people when they're trying to get into doing more home cookery is they'll pick up a recipe book and they'll buy the stuff for the recipe. They'll make the recipe for a dinner party and then they'll go back to a frozen pizza on Monday or whatever it is that they were doing. And I think that's the, I love recipe books, but I also hate them because I think they sort of, they don't necessarily lead you on the journey. You get to a point with it where you're like, oh, that's great. I've made that. Now, what do I do with the half a packet of leftover marjoram I've got? And what am I going to do with, you know, and and I like that idea that food should be a sort of natural journey. And, and within it, you'll occasionally get these impromptu feasting points where you have to eat more because that's what's going to happen. And then for the next three days, the little lunch you knock up is going to be a remnant or an inspiration from that. And that's a difficult thing to convey in a recipe book format, right? It really is. You're actually making the, um, I don't know, the wheels of my mind work about that, about how to write a recipe book that's actually about teaching people like how to use things, not just giving them recipes and saying, make this. Yeah, a sort of cycle of skills set at a sort of fairly basic level where you could just sort of say, okay, these are things you're probably reasonably familiar with cooking and these are the derivatives you can get from them to fill in the gaps between these meals, which will not only save you money, but improve the joy in your life, hopefully. Mm. Someone needs Great. to... Okay. Well, look, if you get a deal on that book, um, uh, I expect an acknowledgement. <laughs> <laughs> sure, although I don't know if I'll get another book. We'll see once this one comes out. <laughs> 
Oh, come on. Uh, okay. All right. So when's it due out? Because I'm excited about this. Uh, so March next year. Okay. Not too far away. Not too far away. Have you, uh, Has the first draft been into the editor yet or, or not? Yes, we're in the um, stage of, oh, God, what is it called when you, um, yeah, we're editing. Nice, nice. It can be difficult, though, can't it, sort of going back over stuff that you've, you've already polished and then sort of taking it apart again and putting it back together again. It's difficult sometimes. I thought that once I wrote the recipes and sent them off that my work is done here. Sorry about that. I can just, um, you know, like brush my, dust my hands and like off I go into the sunset. And there's so much more work. Editing is so hard. Yeah, that's the hard bit of writing. Um, I, um, I have a little bit of experience myself. And I remember this one particular chapter, which was in part of the introduction to, to the book, was sort of why I wanted to talk about why I found eating wild meat far more interesting and complex uh, than buying it um, from a butcher shop and and the ethics involved with that as as in you know of any meat there's quite a lot of ethical issues uh, and when it's wild or semi-wild meat and there's a few more to sort of jump over and think about and that chapter must have taken me a third of the entire time I spent writing the whole blooming thing Oh, yeah, there are those moments where you write something and then you feel like it's not quite right and then you're like, do I leave it or do I go back and really just pour over it until I feel comfortable with it? And, yeah, it's the choice that you have to make. Yeah, there's a very there's a very trite saying, and I want to say that it was Ernest Hemingway that came up with it, but I'm not sure if it was. Um, I might have just made that bit up. But the saying is, it is never finished but it's ready, which is, yeah, is it, you're never, you're never going to be happy with it, but it's done enough for the book. You can't keep going at it because you're never going to be happy with it. And I, I I found that's quite a useful sort of thought to keep in your head. Um, And talking about books, (laughs) you see where I'm going with this? This is handily lent us on to, oh, hang on. What's your book going to be called? Oh, um, working title at the moment is How Wild Things Are. Writing that down. Okay, I was going to say now there's complete silence. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's just a, a, an international internet delay. That immediately conjures up for me the the children's book of where the wild things are. Have you ever yeah, which, seen which that? I, book? Which I really like. I love that book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I am looking forward to reading this, Annalise Gregory. That is something that I cannot wait to do. Um, and and. We're back onto books, which is great because I am literally surrounded by books. On my left-hand side here right now, I've got uh, the River Cottage Hedgerow book by John Wright, which is in such a tattered state from so many things. I've got the Sportsman's Cookery book, which was written by, um, I think, a major Hugh something or other in the 1800s. I've got Cuisine Bon Marche by Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, which was um, recommended to me in a previous podcast. So that's a new one. I've got Nose to Tail Eating here by Fergus Henderson, who um, is a hero of mine. I've got Cooking Explained by Barbara Hammond. I've got Head of the Game by a guy called Simon Whitehead, which is a book all about rabbits. And then I've got uh, Fuchsia Dunlop's Every Grain of Rice. And those are just the ones on the left-hand side of my desk. Cookery, cookery books are quite a thing in my life. Now, I would like you to choose just one cookery book uh, that you're going to have on your desert island, if you like, which 
can be anywhere you want, but you're not allowed to swap any books with anyone. And you have to tell me what you're going to have to drink while you're reading it. That's a, a feature of the Madam's cast. Oh, I didn't know about this. Hmm. I, I sent you a format document. You clearly haven't read it. You've been out picking oysters and drinking wine and taking it far too easy and not worrying about the Madam's cast enough. Um, I'm going to say that doing those things are part of my lifestyle. I am foraging from nature for food. <laughs> um, it, it definitely makes me like you more, not less. This is a this is a good thing. Don't I'm, worry. I'm, I, I'm not good with technology or responding to emails, which you've probably realised. But you know, um, I do other things. Oh, so I'm going to say "Essential Cuisine" by Michelle Bra. Wow. Okay. That's annoying because I haven't got that, which means I'm now going to have to go and buy it. No, Essential- how do you not have it? Oh, don't start. Everybody, this I very quickly realised making this podcast that everybody thinks they've got the best and most seminal cookery books ever and that we all just assume everyone else has got them. That is true, we do. I assume that everyone has it. That's what's going on here. So um, Essential Cuisine, Michelle Bra, I'm going to look that up and I hope I can find a used copy for not very much from the book people or something, uh, the book depository, because I get frowned at when expensive new books turn up. Mm, and I'm going to say, well, so French book, thinking about like, you know, alcohol from like Aveyron and stuff like that. I'm going to say Salos Champagne. Ooh, okay. While I'm reading it on my desert island. Uh, can you... You know a lot more about wine than I do. So I'm going to ask you to repeat the name of this specific champagne so that I get it right. Uh, So there's a champagne called Substance, and it's made by uh, Jacques Salos. Okay. Um, I'm going to get frowned at even more if a bottle of that turns up in the post. Uh, But I'm I'm going to... Yeah, because it's probably about 350 euros now or something. You know how some things just like drastically go up in price. Okay, but I know one or two people that keep private cellars, so maybe there's a bottle sloshing around that might have yeah. my name on. You never know. Ask them. Um, anyone out there listening to the podcast, feel free to send me bottles of expensive, obscure French champagne. Um, I'm looking forward to receiving them. Uh, I can't wait. And anyone in the Southern Hemisphere with any of that kicking about in their cellar, please send it to Annalise. She'd be delighted to um, to receive it, I'm sure. Fantastic. Okay, so you, Annalise, well done. You've managed to negotiate your way through the Madam's cast with minimal preparation and um, less than ideal headphone uh, scenarios. Uh, we only got a couple of internet um, glitches and there was a couple of emails, but they'll just add to the atmosphere of the show. Um, I've really enjoyed talking to you. I hope I haven't interrupted you too much. No, it's been good. Really good. Excellent. Um I would like you quickly, before you sign off, to do two things. I want you to tell the people at home listening how they can find out more about you, um, on how to follow you on social media, and what uh, you know where to where to land on the internet to find out about things you're up to. And I'd also like you to nominate someone else to come and have a chat with me. They don't have to, and they can be real or fictitious, alive or dead, but you can still nominate them. That's up to you. Uh, it's it's not reliant on them agreeing to do it. It's just interesting to know what you think. Um, so can you fill us in about where we can find you? 
so I am mainly found on Instagram at, um, at Annalise Gregory at the moment. Great. And in real life, you can find me in Southern Tasmania if you happen to be in the area. <laughs> yeah, well, you might regret saying that. I might, you might just find me drifting onto the beach on a clutching a piece of driftwood or something. But I'm, I'm tempted to give it a go, particularly in mushroom season. Um, okay, and who would you nominate as a future guest on the Madam's Cast? Oh God, I don't know why I'm finding this one really hard. Ooh, is it like a chef or just anything? <laughs> It's entirely up to you. It can be anyone. I mean, it would help if they had some, well, they don't even have to come on, right? And so that's okay. But it would be good if they were someone to do with food because then they'd have some good opinions to share. Okay. Well, in that case, I'm going to nominate my dad, Mark Gregory, also a chef. Boom. That is a great choice. And I've actually already got Mark <laughs> signed up to come and come and do it. So that's uh, that's two in one, which is brilliant. Okay, Annalise, it's been fantastic talking to you. I'm going to stop the recording now and say cheerio. And I'm going to just briefly thank you massively for taking part, your other half for not rattling around in the kitchen too much and going outside to cook so that he didn't disturb you. Oh, no, um, I want to say half. That's my gay husband, Mikey. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Um, now I'm confused. So you've got, so he's not your other half. He's your gay husband. Yes. Well, that's what I refer to him as. Right. So, uh, but you're not married to him. No, we're not actually married. We just okay. hang out together and have keys to each other's houses and stuff like that. Oh, okay. Well, that's totally fine. I get that. And um, does he have geese as well? Or is that just you? No, it's just me with the geese. But um, he has a yacht that we were out fishing on today. Oh, nice. Now, you see, now I want a gay husband with a yacht. Everyone needs a gay husband with a yacht. Okay, I'm going to look one up. Annalise Gregory, Gregory, thank you very, very much for coming on the Madam's Cast. Have an excellent rest of your life. And and please, um, please do tune in and have a listen to this and future and past episodes at some point. Um, Remember to download rather than just stream and leave comments if you like. Thanks, Annalise. We'll catch you later. Okay, thank you.